To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first work or else. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I've entitled this this morning, Your First Love. And um, we are entering, when we look at chapter 2, we're entering the second division of the book of Revelation. Now I mentioned on Wednesday night when we talked about Daniel, it's also divided into three sections. Chapter 1, um, encourage you to come out as we go through Daniel because you can't understand the book of Revelation without having an understanding of the book of Daniel. So what's interesting is both books are divided up into three sections. Chapter one of Daniel is written in Hebrew. And then you have two through seven, which speaks of the Gentile plan for the nations, but it's in Aramaic. It switches languages. And then from 8 to 12, that deals with the future plan of Israel, it reverts back to the Hebrew. But I find it interesting that the book of Revelation, the key verse is in chapter 1. So here's the key to the whole book that divides the book of Revelation into three sections. So look at verse 19 again. Write the things which you have seen. Well, what has John seen? Well, he's just had this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing it down. That's chapter one, it's the first division. And then he says, write the things that are, that would be present tense. This brings us to the seven letters to the seven churches. We are part of what we call the church age. It began with Pentecost. By the way, Pentecost will be May 31st. And, um, oh gee, I'm getting sidetracked already? (laughs) I gotta admire Jack Hibbs. He, um, he challenged the pastors in California because they were not allowed to meet. And he says, no, it's our constitutional right to meet. And we're going to meet. May 31st is Pentecost. So May 31st, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills is going to open. And then he sent this out to pastors, a video clip of himself. He says, will you sign a declaration with me and join in? And um, the result of that invitation by Jack to do this resulted in 3,000 churches. 2.5 million people are going to meet in California on May 31st. So my hat's off to Jack for that one. So the key, the things that are, we're in the church age right now. And the church age will come to an end when the fullness, uh, it says in Romans, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, 
um, it, it implies the taking out of the church. And um, so it had a beginning date, Pentecost, but it'll also have a time when it closes, what we'll touch on that and have a whole study when we get to Revelation chapter four. And then the third division in verse 19, and the things which will take place after this. After what? After the church age. So there you have the three divisions of the book of Revelation. Now, I want to do, because it's the first uh, of the uh, seven churches this morning, I do want to take a little time and give a, um, um, an overview, sort of an introduction, if you would, um, to the seven letters, chapters two and three. Uh, they, there's a fourfold application to these seven churches. Number one, the letters to the churches as they existed at John's time in 95 and 96 AD. Number two, therefore all churches, and us, including us today. Number three, when it says churches, it also implies here to to us as individuals for warning, but also for encouragement. And the fourth application is, each church seems to divide, Define seven distinct periods of church history from the apostles to the second coming. And I'm going to put up a, uh, um, a, a picture of this in just a little bit. Now, the similarities of the seven churches, there are seven of them. Number one, if you're taking notes, the title that Jesus uses for himself has something to do with the spiritual condition of that particular church. Number two, Jesus has complete knowledge of the spiritual condition of the church because this is repeated, I know your works. Now that's interesting to me because the author of this is John and when we just got through teaching through John, one of the things that I pointed out is that every time Jesus had a one-on-one encounter with a person, he told that person something about them that only they knew. And it was one of the ways that, uh, as we also read, I'm going to tell you these things ahead of time so that when they come to pass, you will believe. So the Lord has complete knowledge of each of these churches. Number three, in each church there's either a commendation or a condemnation. Number four, instructions are given on what to do. Number five, words of encouragement are given. Number six, addresses the individual here when he says to him who has ears to hear. Um, I should point out, only a born-again Christian has ears to hear. It says the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, neither can they. You have to be born of the Spirit to have ears to hear. So this is really written uh, to the person that has accepted Jesus Christ and has been born again by the Spirit. And number seven, he has a promise to the overcomer, to him who overcomes. Each promise will be different. This one here happens to be about the tree of life, but that's at the end of the study. Now, the differences, those were the similarities. Now the differences of the seven churches. There are two distinct divisions of the letters. Letters one, two, and three in one division, and four through seven in another. 
Three churches are charged to repent or turn. And Ephesus is one of them, Pergamos and Thyatira. Number three, the last four churches all seem to be in existence when the Lord returns. In other words, there will be four types of churches in existence at the Lord's coming. And as I look at the church at large today, and this would be a good time to put that uh, first time frame up, because with it, um, I'll just make mention. Um, Smyrna is a suffering church, Philadelphia. Um, there's no words or anything bad said about those two churches. But let's go back to the, uh, the time frame. What we have beginning with Ephesus, it appears that the time frame of this would be from the disciples all the way to about 100 AD. Now, next Sunday, which is a Memorial Day weekend, we're going to be talking about Smyrna. Now, this is a suffering church. And um, millions of people were put to death from 100 AD to the time of 312 when Constantine, the emperor, became a Christian. But of course, everybody knows the stories about the Colosseum and being thrown to the lions. And it was during this period of time that there was this great suffering. Well, I look at that, and as you look at history, between 100 AD and 312, we had millions of people just dying for no other reason, but they loved the Lord. And they they were given an opportunity, renounce Christ, hail Caesar, and we'll let you live. Say, sorry, I can't do that. And as a result, millions of Christians were martyred. Now, Pergamos, when we get to it, um, seems to represent the unholy tolerant church. Would have been from Constantine to the papacy, from 312 to 590. And when we get to Thyatira, I really believe it's a reference to the rise of Roman Catholicism and the Reformation. I'll be touching on that when we talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, or the establishing of a priesthood this morning. Sardis would be the dead um, formal church, uh, 1517 to roughly 1750. And then, of course, we all want to be Philadelphia, the the city of brotherly love, um, from 1750 to the rapture. And then Laodicea, the dead worldly lukewarm church, through the tribulation to the end of the age. So let's just look at the last four. As you look at Christendom today, the four that are in existence that I believe exist today would be Thyatira, the Roman Catholic Church. There's over a billion worldwide. We have dead Protestantism. Uh, We do have born-again believers who love the Lord, filled with the Spirit. That would be the Church of Philadelphia. And then um, we have what I call... um, the Prosperity Doctrine Church of the Laodiceans. And uh, they also exist, and uh, we'll be pointing that out more when we get to the Church of Laodicea. Now, as we look at Ephesus, um, the best known of the seven churches, uh, it was a major city in Asia. Paul wrote an epistle to the Ephesians where we're actually going to go to this morning and spend quite a bit of time in Acts chapter 19. Um, it was called the Vanity Fair of Asia. It didn't start out that way. 
Um, it started out as um, a seaport, commercial city, and it was on the main trading route for centuries. Um, I've been there one time, and it's actually seven miles now inland from where the water used to come right up to the city. And what happened is it filled in with marshland. And it's actually now seven miles from the city of Ephesus um, to um, the, the ocean itself. Uh, the temple of Diane to the Ephesians is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I'll be putting up a picture of that in just a little bit. Ephesus, Ephesus has been bequeathed to the Roman Empire in 133 BC by King Attalus III upon his death, the last of the line of the Italian kings who ruled over the area. The city was granted the right of self-government by Rome, a right that was similar to that of Philippi on, on today's uh, Greek mainland. By the time of the New Testament, it had been estimated that the population was somewhere in the area of 250,000 people. And um, the area of Ephesus would be roughly 2,000 acres. And um, it, the diversity of um, the reason after it lost its major ability to be a trading port it sort of became like the Vegas, the place to go, but the, the reason they would go there is to the great temple of Artemis, and if I'm going to put a picture of, of that up right now. Uh, Artemis, also known as the Temple of Diane of the Ephesians, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This would have been uh, uh, what we believe the temple would have looked like. This is what it looks like today. So that, that's the remains of it. And as long as we have this up, well, let me just tell you a little bit about the, about the Temple of uh, Diana, the statue itself. Um, the second temple's dimensions were 425 feet by 220 by 60 feet tall. It had 127 pillars of Parian marble, of which 36 were overlaid with gold and jewels. And um, uh, it, the most famous building in Ephesus when we visited is the library. I'll show you a picture of that. That's the ruins of the library of, um, of Ephesus. Um, Diana was a natural goddess associated with fertility rites. And the rituals included sexual acts, as a lot of the ancient gods were. Uh, this was nothing unusual. But at the time of the New Testament, Ephesus had turned around to some degree from being a fundamentally commercial trade port to one that relied upon the tourism of the Temple of Diana. So people were going there. But it's like, it would be like going to Vegas, you know? It's the old saying that you hear, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And... Um, the same thing with Ephesus. Uh, they, how would you worship um, Diana? Well, immorality, lewdness, sexuality. And that's what it was known for. That's what Vegas is known for. 
It is also to this situation that the Apostle Paul walked and by his action began to put the makers of idols out of business by preaching the gospel. What Paul was actually doing would have been of great concern for the prosperity of the city uh, that had been totally gone over to serve Jesus Christ. We'll be turning to Acts shortly to look at that. But it would appear that Demetrius was rather overplaying his hand judging by the response of the clerk. And Demetrius will introduce you to him when we go to um, the book of Acts. Now I'm going to put um, the seven churches, a map of the seven churches on right now. And let me just point out something. Ephesus, Ephesus appears to have been mentioned first before all others. Not because it was the most important church or the most important city, but because traveling from the island of Patmos, now just think of this, if you just go a little bit to the um, left where it says the Aegean Sea, one of the islands there is Patmos. So John, after writing the book of Revelation, if he's going to be going inland, the first port, which would have been a port city back then, would have been Ephesus. So, traveling from the island of Patmos where the book was written with the intention of visiting all seven locations, and by the way, all of these are in modern-day Turkey. They're, if you go clockwise, the letter that would be written in Ephesus, all the letters he would have, and all the churches would have read all seven letters, but they would have been addressed to individual churches. So it just makes sense to me. If you're taking a ship in, the first city you run into was Ephesus. Ephesus would have been the landing point and the first city visited. The order which then follows is the traveler's journey is is a logical order. Today we'd perhaps have put them in alphabetical order to show that no fellowship was regarded as greater. Um, And uh, of all the cities when we visited Five of the seven cities on one of our side trips to Israel, by far and away the most interesting is one we're studying this morning because of the ruins that were there. With that, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Paul coming to Ephesus. Acts 19, verse 1. Read for seven verses here. And it happened when Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper region, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, Well, we've not even heard so much that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Well, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that's on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened. Remember in the book of Acts, chapter 8, 
when Philip was having this revival, people were getting saved. Even the town sorcerer <laughs> got baptized. And um, uh, they were baptized, but they weren't baptized yet in the Holy Spirit. And so they sent to Jerusalem for Peter and John. Peter and John go up to where? In Samaria, where Philip was. And the Bible says, and they laid their hands on them, and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Just a little sidetrack here. It's possible to be saved and be baptized and still not be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Calvary chapels believe that there's two baptisms. There's water baptism, and then there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do we see it in the scripture? We see it right here. Ephesus, there were disciples. We're baptized, and what? Oh, John's baptism. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, never heard of such a thing. So they not only explained it to them, but they demonstrated the power of God and and through Peter and John, in this case Paul, laid hands on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Just another little sidetrack here because whenever I give a study like this, there's always people thinking, well, I wonder if I am or I'm not. And if I'm not, how do I? Luke chapter 11. Jesus tells this little parable about a son going to his father. He says, Dad, I'm hungry. And he says, he's going to give him a scorpion? He says, of course not. He's hungry. Is he going to give him an egg? No, he's my son. Then the Lord said, if you then, being evil, do good things for your son, how much more will the heaven, your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it? That's as simple as it is. You don't have to have hands laid on you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting to me that in the context of the story that Jesus tells it, it's about being hungry. And the question is, how much do you really want it? Now we know that Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about all the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are there. And the Lord has a gift for everybody who's a Christian. And if you're not sure about If you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's as simple as being hungry for it. How did you get saved? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Boy, I haven't asked for an amen with people in front of me in a long time. I want an amen. 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 (laughs) Oh, I love that. So it's an issue that you don't have to worry about. But it's the attitude of the heart of your passion to want it realizing that I can do nothing of myself unless the Lord does it through you. So with that being said, and we left off with um, um, verse four, John indeed baptized with water, and then they were baptized. Uh, And verse seven says, now there were about 12 in all. So when Paul goes there, there's just these 12 guys. Now in verses eight through 10, It says, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning with, persuading, concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, okay, he's in a synagogue, and now he's saying some things that are not, um, that would be contrary to the law. 
because Paul's talking about grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So some of them got upset in the synagogue, and they spoke evil of the way. Now the term the way here is the first um, name that was ever given to the church. It was called the way. Um, Before the multitudes, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Well, I got out my Zonovan Bible encyclopedia yesterday. I wanted to know who this guy was. And basically, it's a reference to a person who evidently had a large enough facility of his own that he allowed Paul to speak. It was called the school of Tyrannus, but Tyrannus is actually an individual. And he continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Look at how long Paul was there. Two full years teaching. One commentary said they had uh, historical notes that he would start at 11 and end at four. Now that's all speculation, but it's pretty good speculation. And if you do that every day for two years, you're gonna have the gospel flourish. Now, Paul would back up um, the signs and wonders movement, want to put the emphasis on signs and wonders. Here, we're told that Paul was teaching, okay? For two years teaching. But then that was followed up with the signs and wonders. But teaching first, signs and wonders second. That's what we have in verse 11 through 17 here, I believe. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that were brought from his body to the sick and the disease left them and the evil spirits who went out from them. A word of caution here. Uh, Some prosperity teachers and signs and wonders to get your... um, your seed faith money, what they call it, they will show you um, a handkerchief. Uh, let's say Benny Hinn. He's one of the guys that does stuff like this. And he says, I have prayed over this handkerchief. And if you'll send in your love offering to me, we'll send it back out to you. And then he quotes this scripture right here. Well, um, they're called charlatans. <laughs> Look out for them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, exorcists, took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they said, that's pretty heavy what Paul's doing. He's casting demons out. I think we'll do that. And so that they, they would go up to a person who was demon-possessed said, we adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And I love this. It says, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I'd, get, I'd pay money to watch that. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Now you have hundreds of thousands of people that are hearing and seeing these miracles that are being done, but they're also figuring out that Paul's the real deal. 
There's people who are trying to imitate him, but um, they're seeing uh, the reality of spiritual warfare. Uh, So this is all happening in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was magnified. And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. This is called repentance. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, burned them in the sight of them all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So a lot of occultism in Ephesus. So the, word, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now in verses 21 and 22, Paul is going to stay in Ephesus, but he's going to send Timothy and Aratus out. Verse 21, and, and when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit, which he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also go to Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Aratus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So that's another part of Acts chapter 19. What we have uh, from, remember I told you, I'd tell you more about Demetrius, and he causes an uproar, and I'm gonna put on the screen at this time, the amphitheater that... um, if I remember right, held this is in Ephesus, and um, we had our Bible study in there. I can't remember how many thousands of people, but this is what I call an A spot. So you can actually go to Ephesus today, and uh, that's where we had our Bible study when we were there. Well, in verse 23, and about that time, there came a great commotion about the way, okay? In other words, the Christians. And the commotion was basically over this. People are getting saved. And the main business now, remember, is a tourist place. For what? Oh, the goddess Diana. And uh, they would make images, silver images of the goddess Diana. Uh, For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana brought no small profit to the craftsman. In other words, he's getting big bucks for making these um, statues out of silver of Diana. And he called together with him the workers of similar occupation and said, Ben, you know that our prosperity is by this trade. This is how we're making our, our money. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many people away saying they are not gods which we make with our hands. So now they're upset. So not only is a trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion. And rushing into the theater, this is where they went, with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus and and, uh, 
Macedonius and Paul's traveling companions, and Paul wanted to go into the people, and the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials in Asia who were his friends sent to them pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So we learn that Paul never went in to address uh, the, the anger and the frustration of the crowd. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assemble was confused and most of them didn't know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, uh, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana in the image which fell down from Zeus. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against any, courts are open. Um, and there are protocols, let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. Now, the reason, for we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. Remember, this is part of the Roman Empire. He's given them freedom, but it was the Romans' job to make sure that there was peace in the city. So, He's warning them, we could get in trouble for this, so knock it off. Uh, There being no reason which we may give an account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, I'm going to make a statement that Paul was there during the whole duration of this time by just reading one verse of chapter 20. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to him, embraced them, and he departed to Macedonia. Acts chapter 19, is Paul going there? Starting with just 12. Hmm, sounds familiar. I didn't think about it before until now. But it seems like the Lord started with just 12. And it multiplied and grew from there. Let's go back to the book of Revelation. And uh, with that much, we see just how big of a city it was. It'll give you a better understanding when it, tells us of um, maybe some of the reasons that um, the Ephesians had gotten away from their first love. Verse one. We made it to verse one already? (laughs) To the angel of the church of Ephesus, Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Here is a title that the Lord chooses to speak to this church. And again, if you go back to verse 20, it tells us what the seven candlestands are and what the seven stars are. Verse 20 of chapter one. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches 
probably the pastor of the church. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So he's basically introducing himself as the one who's standing in the middle of his church. He walks amongst us, and he knows us. And that's a title uh, that the Lord uses. Again, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. Now in verses two and three, he commends them by saying, I know your works, your labor, your patience, how you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who uh, say they are apostles that are not, and you have found them to be liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now all of these are commendable for any church. But um, as I speak about the commendation that the Lord gives here, uh, these seven words of commendation with the Lord Jesus gave to the local church at Ephesus. Now, whenever we have works and without the main thing, which is the gospel and our love for Jesus, another good place for an amen. So we got all the works that are going on here. And matter of fact, it's commendable. And what I'm about to say next, I'm not associating to the church of Ephesus, but I want to point out something that's going out there today. I was praying whether or not I should do this or not because it involves naming names. So what, what do I get from an email this morning? And I open, open it up, but it's a 15-minute clip from, by Chris Quintana saying why we should name names. <laughs> I'm going to play it. I'm going to play it next Sunday. So I'm thinking, should, should I go there or not go there? And so I get up this morning and open this up, and here, here's Chris. It's like Mary's update, about 10 or 15 minutes. And he, say, and he, he gives biblical reasons why it's necessary to name names and to, for, as for a shepherd to tell the flock what to look out for. Well, how are you gonna know what to look out for unless I name names? So we name names. So another little sidetrack this morning, to keep it brief, I'm actually quoting from um, one of Mary's little pamphlets here. And I want you to know that we have them out on the table because I know you're going to want to pick one up and read more than just the paragraph that I'm going to read this morning. So we have those available. But um, Mary's writing about Jim Wallace here. But then she quotes T.A. McMahon from the Brian Call. So I'm quoting um, T.A., our good friend. Uh, in an article written by T.A. McMahon in the Brian Call called The Shameful Social Gospel. What I want to expose now is what we call the social gospel. Who's behind it and what does it involve? McMahon once warns of a gospel that is being tinkered with by some who call themselves evangelicals, but in reality are ashamed of the true gospel, presenting a new gospel to the world that is more palatable, politically correct, and ecumenical. We also refer to it uh, emergent church pioneer Brian McLaren. All right, here's one of the guys you want to look out for. 
His view of the social gospel reveals the interspiritual, interfaith nature behind it. I think our future will require us to join humbly and charitably with people of other faiths, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, and secular in pursuit of peace. Do you realize that that's what's going on right now? And that the Pope is actually calling for this? Say, so you don't need to witness to Muslims. Um, we all believe in the same God. And we know eventually when we get to Revelation 17, there's gonna be a one world religion. And we also know, as Mary has been pointing out, there's gonna be a one world government. Well, that's what's primarily behind the social gospel. Putting down doctrine that would divide, and doctrine does divide. And um, he goes on to say, uh, but McBann reminds us, no, what matters to the heart of God is that all should come to repentance and believe the true gospel. I've watched world-famous organization start out well, World Vision, started out, started out preaching the gospel. Well, it's nothing more than a social gospel now. And it basically helping people um, with their needs. Then he quotes Rick Warren. Here's another name that you need to be aware of. Um, Rick Warren took the social gospel to a new level by hobnobbing with world leaders and presenting his global P.E.A.C.E. In other words, global peace plan. To mobilize churches to address poverty and disease while at the same time relaying to tens of millions through his purpose-driven life book, not to bother with Bible prophecy. In fact, taking the Bible out of context, he tells us that Jesus said, those who concern themselves with Bible prophecies are not fit for the kingdom of God. You guys aren't fit, I'm sorry. (laughs) Rick Warren's... Remember to Rick Warren's interview of the 2008 presidential candidates at Saddleback Church. Ever wonder how he got that job? I sure have. Now Jim Wallace is carrying this very same agenda to the highest level of our governments as an appointee of the president. Wallace has also found a kindred spirit in California at Saddleback, but in the Midwest, it's called Willow Creek. Uh, Again, I'm naming names. Uh, Lynn Heibel, the wife of Willow Creek senior pastor Bill Heibel, who's no longer pastoring because he fell morally, but they still have their annual conference, leadership conferences, and um, uh, it's seen by thousands of people all over the world. Why I find interesting, you might have one person in there who's a Christian, but all the rest of the speakers are heads of CEOs. It's a leadership conference. Does it work? Absolutely. Um, The one who planted both in Rick Warren's mind and in Bill Heibel's mind, who they respect and look up to, is Peter Drucker. And he's like the guru to the CEOs in America. Is it, does it work? Oh, you'll have a mega church, no problem. But it's one that you have to dumb down the gospel 
And it's one when you have you take your leaders to it. You're not having Bible studies and having prophecy conferences. Matter of fact, they're saying just the opposite. Stay away from that stuff. You're not fit for the kingdom of God if, if you believe in Bible prophecy. Uh, he's a regular writer, uh, Bill Heibel, to the Sojourners Magazine. In addition, Willow Creek offers classes on Wallace's band brand of social justice. And I thought, Lord, I don't know if I should read that and name those names this morning. Open up my email, here's Chris. <laughs> 15 minutes, you'll see it next week. Why it's important to name names. <laughs> so we, let me drop a couple other ones. Very popular today is a man named Francis Chan. Uh, to my um, great sadness, uh, when Gospel for Asia took their fall, the three Calvary Chapel pastors resigned and who came on to take their place was Francis Chan. And that grieves me. Sean Claiborne would be another one of these names that are out there and they're promoting and propagating what we call the social gospel. What is the social gospel? Um, Being concerned for the poor and no gospel. Are we concerned for the poor? Yeah, we're in contact on almost a daily basis with Haiti and um, other missionaries uh, that have given their whole life for the poor. And we really do need to be praying for, Abbasi just sent me a, a, his monthly newsletter, and the sad thing is, is that in the rural areas, they have no food. And um, they're told they can't come out of their houses. So one of the things that Bastia said was they don't know what to do because they're going to die if they stay in their house and they're going to die if they go out of their house because of uh, what they're, they're calling um, the, the pandemic. I think there's only like 100 and some cases in, in the whole country. But again, this is a worldwide thing that's happening. But it's such a tragedy because the poorest of the poor, are they have no money. Um, we help them out as much as we can by sending extra. And Bastia says that on a daily basis, people will venture out when they shouldn't and they will ask for food um, from Calvary Chapel Carnet. Let's get back to our study. <clears throat> Jesus um, acknowledges their works. And a little sidetrack here about now verse four, this big word, nevertheless, You have all this going for you, but nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. They left their first love. They didn't lose it, but they left it suggesting an act of the will. With this, I'm gonna have you turn to the book of Deuteronomy chapter six. So let's make our way all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter six. They had left their first love. In Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, a man walked up to Jesus one day and says, what's what's the greatest commandment? And this is what the Lord quoted. Deuteronomy six, verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. 
And these words which I command you today will be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and and you shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the first and greatest commandment. Um, Let's go back to the book of Revelation. In verse four, the Lord tells them, nevertheless, you've left out the most important thing, and that is your first love. They had lost that intense and enthusiastic devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. It's difficult for us to sense the state to which the Holy Spirit had brought this church. He had brought the believers in Ephesus into an intimate and personal relationship. Remember they started with 12, and then it just spread like wildfire. Uh, He had brought them to the place where they could say to the Lord, we love you, Lord. Probably one of the best worship songs ever written. I love you, Lord. That one, it was actually written by a gal named Joan Klein from Milwaukee. I used to be in a Bible study with her down in that area. But uh, they're responsible for that beautiful worship song. Um, That personal relationship is all important in our day. We also, uh, we are so involved in methods, speaking about the purpose-driven church and so on. I'm rather amused at some of the Band-Aid courses which are being offered and they are making band-aid believers. Generally, the course is some little legal system that gives you certain rules to follow and certain psychological patterns to observe, which will enable you to solve your problems. Instead of knowing the Lord in such a personal way that you're able to cast your cares upon him, even during troubling times like right now. Another good place for an amen. You know, this is where the rubber meets the road for us as believers. And again, um, just having fellowship and one-on-one contact with the church. When I talked to, I'd, people would call me up and we'd fellowship or I'd see them and they'd say, you know, I can handle all the rest, but I can't handle not having fellowship. I want to go back to church. <laughs> and um, so he gives instructions on what to do to this, what he just told them, I have this against you that you've left your first love. In verse five, remember therefore how you have fallen. I call these the three R's. Repent and do the first work. And the Lord says here or else. And when Jesus says or else, we better be listening. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is an open rebuke. Have you ever been openly rebuked? Um, And do you know the necessity of biblical correction? I have a question for you at this time. How do you respond when you are rebuked or chastised by the Lord? Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. It's a necessity. Being reproved 
proves that we are born again. That's what Hebrews 12 is telling us. So in Hebrews 12, let's pick it up in verse five. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. That includes daughters too. And it says, my son, do not despise the chastising of the Lord. And don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Jesus is rebuking the church of Ephesus. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. It proves that you're born again when you're being corrected. If you endure chastising, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastising, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who correct us, and we pay them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For indeed, for a few days, they chastised us, it seems best to them. But he, our Heavenly Father, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastising seems to be joyful. Um, We go through trials, and we're told, don't think it's strange. You're going through this trial, and go, this is strange. So what does the scripture say? Don't think it's a strange thing when you go through a fiery trial. It could be that the Lord is dealing with you about an issue. That's good. And that's what it's telling us here. But it doesn't, when you're going through it, when you're going through a fire, it doesn't feel good. Uh, no chastising seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable, notice the word here, fruit of righteousness. In other words, when we're rebuked and corrected, God is actually working a fruit into your life, in this case, you become more righteous because you're being corrected and becoming more like him. Of those, and I like this, who have been trained by it. My friends, we need to look at trials and when they come as um, not strange, but actually know and understand that the Bible tells us we're being taught and trained by going through rebukes from our Lord. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. In other words, get over it. Make straight paths for your feet so that uh, what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Let's go back to Revelation. He just rebuked them. And what I love about this is verse six. This is so interesting to me because after the rebuke, He goes to verse six, he says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now I'll come back and talk about the Nicolaitans. But this is what what I find interesting. How Jesus follows up the rebuke of repentance or else with verse six. And what he does is he doesn't lay, I have a guilt trip on you. No, he says if you do this, he's changing thought completely. And he now commends them. Well, he just condemned them. (laughs) And now in the very next verse, he's commending them. um, And he doesn't leave them hanging in guilt or condemnation. 
I want to camp on this for just a bit because there are those people that have certain types of personalities that they listen to the devil way too much after they've been corrected and they're very, very hard on themselves when the Lord's already done with the correction and now he wants to commend you. So I want you to turn, we're gonna come back here and deal with the Nicolaitans, but go to the book of Romans chapter seven. We'll just be there a couple verses here. Romans seven, I'll pick it up in verse 15. Paul, talking about, for what I am doing I do not understand. Verse 15, for what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I would not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, something good must dwell there. Aren't you gonna call me out on that one? (laughs) Nothing good dwells. And you know, we think to ourselves, there's gotta be something in there, in me that's good. No, my Bible says our heart is deceitfully wicked above everything. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, my flesh is so tricky that I don't even judge myself. Nothing good dwells. For to will is present. Well, I want to do the right thing. But how do we perform what is good? I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not. But the evil that I would not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. For Ephesus, they had left their first love and they had been a part of this immoral society that had somehow distracted them. Paul says, I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who dwells to do good. But I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And then he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer. If, it was, if we had any part of the equation of salvation, not one of us would make it. Another good place for an amen. So what do we do? We thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with my mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. But that's not where he ends it. The first verse of Romans 8 has to be put to memory because it's a therefore. Whenever there's a therefore, we gotta read what preceded it. So what preceded this? Paul telling us what a mess he is. Doesn't want to. And he says, I thank God. But now we have to claim the scripture for ourselves, especially those who after you've gone through a trial, you've sinned, you've repented, Now you have to accept and say, thank God for the cross. Thank God for Jesus, because oh, wretched man that I am. But then he says, therefore, no condemnation. You can't get down on yourself. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have to accept the forgiveness. But gang, this is where it all comes back to your first love. When you realize what a wretch you are, you want to do the right thing, but you don't, 
you look at the cross and you go, oh, thank you, Jesus. And um, now I have to accept the grace and say there's, I can't beat up on myself and I can't let the devil do it either. He's the accuser of the brethren. Oh, he'll accuse you and he'll try to bring you down. You can't go there. You have to accept the grace. Now, what does that produce? An attitude of gratitude and a love for the Lord. And how did they get off track? They left their first love. And how do you get back on track? Just thanking the Lord for what he's done and his grace that he's given. And it creates a love in your heart. Lord, I wouldn't make it any other way. Thank you so much to Jesus for all that you've done. And I'm gonna stand on this verse and I'm not gonna condemn myself and I'm not gonna let uh, the enemy do it either. Let's go back and finish up our study. One more verse. I gotta tie in the Nicolaitans. So he doesn't condemn them, but he encourages them by saying, um, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The deeds of the Nicolaitans, meaning um, Nico in the Latin and Greek, which is, means priest, um, conqueror, or overseer of, laos, well, we get the word laity from that, or people. So they're people conquerors ruling over people. In other words, what he has in view here is Jesus saying, I hate the idea of a hierarchy, of a pope, of a cardinal, of a priest, so on and so forth, where we have this hierarchy of people. No, there's one mediator between God and man. We have straight access to him. And so the Lord is saying, you hate the idea of the priesthood. If you look at chapter two, verse 15, they were keeping it out in the first century church. But by the time we're gonna get to Pergamos, it says, verse 15, thus you also have those here in Pergamos that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The priesthood had started and they were going along with it. Which things I hate. What did... Jesus do when the disciples were arguing who was gonna be the greatest among them? He called them out. (laughs) And he said, no, if you wanna be great, what do you have to do? You gotta learn to be a servant to all. So if you wanna be great in the kingdom of heaven, you gotta learn to be a servant. And he says, I don't only dislike it. Jesus is using the word hate. I hate the idea of a hierarchy over people. The only hierarchy that you have is your Lord and there's only one Lord and that's Jesus Christ. Another good place for an amen. Last verse. Um, I'd like to close with an example of the three R's, real repentance versus um, a fake repentance and the two figures that I'd like to use are David and his son, Solomon. So turn with me to 2 Samuel, chapter 12, chapter 11. I'm taking out my psalm right now. This is chapter 11, Psalm 32, of 2 Samuel 11. It's David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and to cover it up, he has Uriah the Hittite, her husband, killed. So David is an adulterer and a murderer. 
and he sinned. Chapter 12, uh, David writes about it in Psalm 32 here. Uh, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones groaned. In other words, the Lord dealt with David for quite a period of time until he's broken. Well, how does he get broken? Well, he sends a prophet named Nathan in chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, and he tells the story of the two rich men, uh, the rich man, and one was poor. Rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except just one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. He grew up with him, with his children, ate out of his own hand and drank from his own cup and laid in, him, in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock uh, and his own herd, and he prepared one um, for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it before the man who had come to him. Now David has to judge this situation. It's a hypothetical situation, and it's a setup for sure that the Lord is doing here with David. And David's anger was greatly aroused and answered the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, he will surely die. Well, that's not the penalty for stealing a sheep. In the law, it says if you steal a sheep, you gotta give the guy four sheep in return. But it's not a death penalty. So David, in his anger, says the guy's gotta die. And he shall restore, and this is the law now, the fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing. That's Exodus 22.1. Then Nathan said to David, you're the guy, David. You're the man. I made you king over Israel. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that would have been too little, I would have given you more. Why have you despised the command of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Talk about a dart to the heart. You're the guy, David. Verse 13. The reason we're here, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned, not against Bathsheba, not against Uriah. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. And he was forgiven. He was forgiven because it was genuine repentance. Now I want to contrast that with Solomon. And what is David known for? If I would say the name David, and I ask you the question, what's his title? What is he known for? He's known for a man after God's own heart. That's what David is actually known for. And by the way, all these psalms were put to music. All right, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon. Started out well, just like the Ephesians. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, I'll just read one verse here. Verse 3, it says, And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high place. Did he start out well? He sure did. But if you flip over to 1 Kings chapter 11, we read 1 through 11. This is the end of his life, 
The first part when he was first called. For King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods, but Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, whoa, (laughs) 300 concubines, and notice what it says, and his wives turned away his heart. And so it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart. That's what happened to Ephesus. And it was turned away from. And um, we have a contrast uh, here. Um, And his heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God, as the heart of his father, David. Well, Solomon also has a reputation. What is his reputation? not listening to the word of God. And the consequences are, he left also his first love. So, uh, I guess my closing question this morning, closing thought, in the quieter of your own heart, please answer this question. I'm not gonna ask people to raise their hands or look around or anything like that. Just in the quiet of your own heart between you and the Lord. What's the most important thing in your life? If you can't answer my love for Jesus Christ, then according to our study this morning, you need to do three things. You need to remember what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus. And if you've gotten away from that, then you need to repent. Whatever that thing is you're thinking of, what's the most important thing in my life? That's what you need to repent from. And then you need to return. And know that when you do that, the Lord is gonna forgive you just like he did David. And then, again, this was the Lord this morning in my wisdom for today. How many times have I said this is my closing thought? This is, I promise, this is wisdom for today and it's for all of us here. It's from Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse four. He brought me to his banqueting house and his banner over me was love. During a courtship, this is Pastor Chuck, we usually try hard, hard to hide the truth about ourselves. We're afraid if other people knew the truth, they wouldn't love us anymore. We want them to think we're always sweet and we never get angry. And then we get married and the truth comes out. <laughs> That's one of the wonderful things about Jesus. He knows everything there is to know about you. Everything you don't know about yourself. He sees your weaknesses and flaws, knows your background, backward and forward, inside and out, upside and down, and he still loves you. He has invited you into his banqueting house and his banner over you is love. What is the banner? It is God declaring to the world, this is the one I love. Many times, God's love comes to me just when I have been at my worst, when I have been miserable, unworthy, completely undeserving. That is when God seeks to show me just how great and how unconditional his love is for me. 
He does this so I can rest in the knowledge that his love doesn't alter from day to day. In all your life, you'll never experience a love like the love that God has for you. God's love seeks only your best. His love is pure enough to overcome your failures, strong enough to endure your weaknesses. God's love is everlasting. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, even though there's only seven verses and only having one service, able to take a little bit more time than usual, Lord, we ask that you would remind us on a regular basis of of seeking first your kingdom and loving you. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you for the church of Ephesus. Thank you for rebuking them and then commending them. And we're just grateful for the great grace that you've given to us. And I just pray you bless our fellowship now as we go. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.